And now we will continue to worship the thrice holy God by looking into his word. Will you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And this morning I have entitled my discourse to you, God of all comfort. And this is going to be part one of perhaps at least two parts, maybe three, we shall see. But this morning I would like for us to begin by reading the first 11 verses. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Now, there are at least three important concepts that emerge from these 11 verses In days to come, we will see, number one, that God comforts the afflicted. We will also see that believers are comforted to comfort others. And finally, we will see that prayer unleashes the power of God. And I know this might sound odd, and it is, but beginning next Sunday, we will examine these things in detail. I was planning on beginning to do that this morning, but as I thought through the introduction to all that is about to transpire in our study of 2 Corinthians, especially these first 11 verses, I realized that I needed to give a rather long introduction today that I hope will be helpful to you. I have much to say that I believe is instructive and encouraging to you especially as it relates to this passage of Scripture. I'm sure you will all agree that life is filled with distress and disappointment, sorrow and suffering, pain and persecution, for those who love Christ, that is. And even with all the blessings and joys of life, we still experience Satan's assaults in many ways. Like a thug in an alley, he lurks in the shadows to bring trouble upon us in ways that we can't even imagine, especially in relationships, wanting to do his mischief, 
Disappointment plagues every marriage and every family. And like a terrorist on an airplane, trouble sits in the seats in churches. Corruption and cruelty are the twin sisters of of evil who seek to do Satan's bidding in the halls of government. We see this all the time. And because the human heart is deceitful and, and desperately wicked, the deadly virus of sin sickens us all at some level. Sin is the great evil that has made us sinners by nature and brought upon mankind the curse of God who has been offended by our rebellion. And, and we see the effects of sin and God's judgment everywhere we look. Who would ever have thought that our country that was founded on the principles of the Protestant Reformation, so many biblical principles, would now be one of the most ungodly countries in all the world? A place where it is legal to kill unwanted babies. Where the most vile forms of immorality are celebrated in parades with rainbow banners unfurled. A perverted mockery of the symbol of God's everlasting covenant, the glorious token of his grace after the flood. A country where a growing number of parents want to let their children decide what gender they want to be. A place where drag queens read stories to children in libraries and even some so-called churches. I understand that Sesame Street is now going to have episodes with this. A place where major cities are filled with homeless drug addicts shooting up heroin on the streets and the sidewalks that are littered with needles and feces, a place where the hearts of the people have been so deceived and so conditioned by sin that they would consider a Marxist socialist or a homosexual to be their next president. Folks, we live in a country where sin is no longer sin. It's now the new morality. People have no sense of guilt. And we see historically that every empire that has proceeded down this road has ended in utter collapse and ruin. In fact, America can be likened to ancient Jerusalem, ancient Judah, where God judged them. If you read in Isaiah and other prophets, you will see that God judged them because of their idolatry. As a part of their ritual worship of Molech, the god of the Moabites, they, they sacrificed their children in a fire. No different in many ways than the abortion industry today. They were judged because of their materialism, because of their, their drunken debauchery, because of their immorality. They called evil good and good evil. They were judged because of corruption in their government, because of aggressive feminism. And basically, they were judged for their utter disregard for God and his holy standards of righteousness. They had no fear of God. It's fascinating. As a result, prior to the invasion of the Babylonians, we see how God judged them in a very unique way. He allowed their rulers to be replaced by immature leaders. Children, the text says, and arrogant women, which led them into further degeneration and irresponsibility at a national level. In Isaiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, we read this, And I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them. And the people will be oppressed, each one by another and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. 
Beginning in verse 11, we read, woe to the wicked, meaning damned upon the wicked. It will go badly with them, for what he deserves will be done to him. Oh, my people, their oppressors are children and women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. Is this not a picture of America? We have people in positions of leadership, arrogant men and an increasing number of women in positions of authority. And most of them are astonishingly incompetent and immoral. Fools living in a fool's paradise. And we see the same thing in the church. I mean, think of the explosion of women elders, women leaders, women pastors, women preachers, even in evangelicalism, which is clearly prohibited in Scripture. In fact, 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-three: women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is improper, literally disgraceful, shameful, for a woman to speak in church. And other passages are equally clear. We've studied them. But the response today is, well, wrong. We, we don't buy that. Things have changed. We're going to do our own thing. So now we have an increasing number of churches that are being led by self-appointed women pastors who have not been called nor gifted to function in that role. God would never call or gift someone to do something that he forbids. And, of course, this is all consistent with the feminist agenda. And once again, this is reminiscent of the kind of disregard for authority that occurred in the days of ancient Judah and brought judgment upon them. For example, instead of the women adorning the the inner person with godliness, they adorned the outer person in an effort to attract attention to themselves, and they usurped the authority of the men. In Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 16, we read this. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet, Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. He went on to say, now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of a well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle and her gates will lament and mourn and deserted she will sit on the ground. You know, folks, when I think of our country and when I think of the, of the church today, my mind immediately goes to these and so many other passages. I think of the judgment that's recorded again in Isaiah 3 beginning in verse 8, the judgment upon Jerusalem And Judah, it says, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Oh, child of God, what has happened What has happened to us? What has happened to our country? What has happened to the church? It's so discouraging, isn't it? My my heart just breaks when I think of these things. And so often I have to deal with what happens as a result of all of these kinds of deceptions, all of this wickedness. I find myself saying with Habakkuk, remember in Habakkuk 1 verse 2, Or he said, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. 
Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And although it is appropriate for us to lament, to mourn, and to even be righteously indignant, it is not appropriate for us to hate the wicked. We must love them and give them the gospel. I remember well Psalm 73. You remember perhaps the, the eminent singer of Israel and the chief musician Asaph wrote that psalm. And in that psalm, he essentially asked the questions, why do the, why do the wicked prosper? And the godly suffer. Verse 3 of Psalm 73 says, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, he said, like we are prone to say, you know, it's just not fair, God. Why are the wicked seemingly exempt from all of the difficulties and dangers of life? They arrogantly refuse to humble themselves before you. They mock your word, and yet they seem to be blessed because of their ignorance and their arrogance. But then you will recall that after contemplating these things in frustration, Asaph describes a change of heart that could be likened almost to a conversion. He began to grasp the reality that the prosperity of of the sinners is, is really just a mirage that they are ultimately headed for disaster. In verse 18, he says, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. You see, friends, in reality, it is the righteous who are blessed with, with insight and with guidance. It's the righteous who have the hope of heaven. Verse 23, it says, with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. And for this reason, we must celebrate the hope that is ours in Christ and share it with others. Verse 28 of that same psalm says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Oh, what comfort we have in the truth of the word of God. Where would we be without it? Don't we all need to be comforted in our afflictions? We've all got them. We've brought them here today. And do we not all need to be about evangelism, about being salt and light to the lost. Dear Christian, do not let the sins of the ungodly extinguish your love for them, but instead let the consequences of of sin cause you to celebrate all the more the grace of God in your own life and animate you with a zeal for evangelism. We must have compassion upon them and be kind to them and love them enough to pray for them and to give them the gospel without compromise. We all struggle with sin, ours and others, to be sure, as I said earlier, distress and disappointment, sorrow and suffering, pain and persecution. All of those things are the very air that we breathe in this fallen world. And it's only going to get worse as sin continues to metastasize. Second Timothy 3, beginning in verse 12, Paul said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In fact, we know that all of creation groans as a result of God's curse upon man. We read about this, for example, in Romans 8. Remember in verse 23, he says, And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. 
So friends, until that day of final deliverance, we are all in need of comfort. And that comfort comes primarily from the word of God, from the power of the spirit that dwells within us, the great truths of scripture that's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. So we don't walk in darkness. Psalm 36, 9, for with thee is the fountain of life in thy light. We see light, but we know that God also comforts us through his people. My, what a comfort you all are to me and to my wife, to my family. Hopefully we are to you. It's God's way of wrapping his arms around us when we love one another. And Paul's going to remind us of this as we continue our study. That loving touch, that warm smile, that that arm around the shoulder of encouragement, and, and then that gentle reminder of the character and the promises of God, of the gospel. My, what a comfort that is to us all. That, that blessed hope that we have, that blessed hope for which we look, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, as Paul told Titus. In Isaiah 40, the prophet exhorted Judah to prepare for the revelation of the Lord's glory and the coming of the Messiah, which brought hope, which brought promise to Israel and of a glorious future subsequent to the horrendous judgment that was about to fall upon them, that they would have to endure the hands of the Babylonians. And in that great text in Isaiah 40, God says this through his prophet, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem, call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And we saw the beginnings of this in the incarnation. It will be fulfilled ultimately in the future glorious kingdom of Messiah. But folks, were it not for the certainty of God's saving purposes that have been revealed to us in his word, we would have no comfort because we would have no hope and we would walk in darkness. Well, the apostle Paul needed comfort. He needed to be comforted as we all do. And God delivers. He delivered in his life as he delivers in ours. So let me give you a little of the historical background here where you will see this more clearly. One of the great dangers of a new church like that in Corinth is that it, is a place where people can come in that have no discernment. They're just growing in Christ, and they become easy prey for false teachers. Immature, undiscerning Christians are easy prey for false teachers. And like deadly vipers, false teachers slithered into that church, claiming to be apostles that were sent by the saints in Jerusalem. The inspired apostle knew the dangers that they posed, like some of the examples that I have given you with what false teachers will teach. You will recall what Jesus warned in Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who comes to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The idea there is that false prophets impersonate true shepherds, who in those days could be easily recognized by their woolen attire. So a wolf in sheep's clothing is, is merely an idiom that was used in that day to describe someone who looks like a shepherd on the outside, but is really a ravenous false teacher on the inside. That's the idea. 
And today we see pulpits around this country, around the world, filled with predators. And sadly, too often the sheep are too dumb to know it. Moreover, they're typically outnumbered by the goats. Paul warned the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 29. After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And you will remember that Jude warned of the same thing. You remember in Jude 4, he talked about certain persons who will creep into the church unnoticed. And that's what they did. They would pose as itinerant teachers. And so nothing about their arrival would be alarming. They would be kind of charismatic, wonderful, sweet people. They would come into the church. They would fit in. They're friendly. They're engaging, but they are deadly because they are emissaries of Satan. They continue to breed like fruit flies on a rotten banana in our country today. Second Peter 2, Peter warned about false prophets. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Uh, They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. He speaks of how they are daring, self-willed, reviling where they have no knowledge. They revel in their deceptions. They have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. They entice unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. They speak out arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. And he says they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Well, you must understand that men like these had entered into the church at Corinth. And they were not only teaching heresy, but worse yet, they were challenging the Apostle Paul's apostolic authority. And they were assaulting his character. So Paul left Ephesus and went to Corinth to confront these men, which, by the way, was was called the sorrowful visit, as we see in chapter 2 and verse 1. And so there was a confrontation, and it didn't go well, as you can imagine. Evidently, one of the false apostles actually openly insulted him, and the thing that was the real difficult part of the whole ordeal was that most of the people in the church did not come to Paul's defense. And that is heartbreaking. So Paul goes back to Ephesus and he writes what is known as the, as the severe letter. We read about this in verse four of chapter two. And then he had Titus deliver it to them. So we don't have a copy of that, but we know he wrote that. And later, Paul had to leave Ephesus, where he was at, because you will recall there was a great riot that ensued because of the, of the silversmiths who were making shrines to Diana, remember, led by Demetrius. Um, so, so many people were coming to Christ that they were losing money. So they had to do something to get them out of there. And so Paul has to flee, and Paul goes to Troas to meet his brother Titus. He's hurting But he's so anxious about how the Corinthians would respond to his severe letter that he's unable to even minister, even though he had an opportunity to do so. So he left for Macedonia to try to find Titus. And finally, they connect. And when he does, he hears good news. Most of the people at the church at Corinth had repented those who had rebelled against Paul. But Paul also knew that there were still some smoldering embers of resentment and rebellion that needed to be extinguished, lest they set ablaze once again the great lies and deceptions within the church. By the way, it's interesting, today when you have factious people in a church and they're unable to find consensus and to somehow galvanize the support of other malcontents and form a a coup, 
When they're unable to do that, they typically just lob some slander grenades into the church, and then they, they leave angrily and find another church. Well, when there's no other church, what do you do? And that's kind of what happened there. So Paul writes 2 Corinthians, probably from Philippi. And his concern was not only to express his joy and his relief in their repentance, but also to defend his apostleship and confront the false teachers. Folks, I can tell you, and I'm sure you've been there, being falsely accused produces a severe and a unique kind of pain within the soul. You feel helpless. You feel humiliated. You feel embarrassed, afraid angry, all of those things at at the same time, especially when you know how the wicked who have accused you have done all kinds of things. And you've got a file this thick that you can't share with anybody else. You just have to endure it. But then it is greatly compounded when other friends or family members somehow agree with them. This was what was going on with Paul. And by the way, this is a common strategy that Satan uses against pastors and church leaders, one designed to discourage and distract and defeat and and even dislodge a pastor from his ministry. But But it's knowing this that actually strengthens you and helps you fight the battle. Because knowing these things literally brings comfort. For example, when I've been there, I, I might know, for example, that I'm completely innocent of whatever is being said, but I also know that I deserve far worse, that I'm guilty of far worse. I'm guilty of things I don't even know I'm guilty of, right? And for this reason, we find comfort in knowing that God is ultimately in control. And what I want to share with you in the remainder of our time here this morning is just four benefits of trials that are certain to bring comfort to us, as they have to me. And I think this will help prepare our hearts for what the Spirit of God has revealed to us in verses 1 through 11. First of all, friends, know that God has ordained your afflictions for your good and his glory. Know that. Never forget that. We must remember that we serve a sovereign God, not a contingent God. There is no plan B with God. He never puts his hand on his mouth and goes, oh my, now what am I going to do? Isaiah 46.10 says that he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that he works all things after the counsel of his will. Not only is he a sovereign God, he is an omniscient God that knows all things. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4 and verse 13 that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And because we know that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans eight twenty eight, we can exult in our tribulations, literally result because of them. Romans 5, beginning in verse 3. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Folks, every time some great difficulty comes into your life, know that it is an opportunity for you to grow in Christ. And know that that is an opportunity for you to long all the more for heaven. God uses trials to make us more dependent upon him, to loosen our grip upon this world. Indeed, the greater the sorrow, the greater the longing for the next life, right? And herein is the comfort of God's promises. Well, Paul understood this. And he reveled in this. In fact, he said later on in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, for momentary light affliction 
is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Dear friends, find comfort in these truths. Secondly, know that every trial is an opportunity to strengthen your faith that you might experience more of the power and the presence of Christ in your life. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, that familiar passage, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, God has ordained our afflictions to drive us to him, not from him. And when we cast ourselves upon his mercy and dependent trust, we enter into an ever-deepening communion with him. Moreover, we become more like him. While I hate Satan's assaults, I've learned to find comfort in the midst of them, even because of them. You might say, well, why? Well, how? Because, dear friends, in the midst of the fires of affliction, I have experienced the presence and the power of Christ like no other opportunity in my life. Many of you have experienced the same thing. Even as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace that Nebuchadnezzar prepared for them. What did they experience? They experienced the presence of Christ. Moreover, you have no idea what God might be up to through your afflictions. Who's watching? What you're going to learn, what others are going to learn. My mind goes to Daniel 3, beginning in verse 24. Great passage of scripture. Think about it. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of the blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the kings, high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had, and I love this, the smell of fire even come upon them. Boy, when God does something, he really does it, doesn't he? Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Boy, don't you wish Congress would make such a declaration? Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of of Babylon. Dear friends, know again that every trial is an opportunity for you to have your faith strengthened and for you to experience the power and the presence of Christ in your life. Thirdly, know that every trial is an opportunity for you to grow into Christ-like obedience through his word. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. 
The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat. The, the Hebrew is interesting. It, it, it literally says their heart is as fat as grease. The, uh, an idiom that basically means they are dull, they are gross, they are insensible to spiritual things. And certainly slanderers walk by the flesh, not by the spirit. But he went on to say, but I delight in your law. In other words, the word of God. It is good for me that I was afflicted, and here's why, that I may learn your statutes. Charles Spurgeon said, often our trials act as a thorn hedge to keep us in the good pasture, but our prosperity is often a gap through which we go astray. Oh, child of God, know that a good God ordains our afflictions. And, and, and from them we discover the, the, the crafty malice of the wicked. Do not turn us away from God, but drive us to him. And that's what the Lord wants. Affliction drives us to the word. It drives us to our knees in sweet communion. I have seen over and over in my life how God has tempered the steel of my faith in the fires of suffering. I have seen how he has forged a sharper sword for his service on the anvil of adversity. I've seen how the word of God has brought clarity and comfort and conviction to people struggling with sin, myself included. I recall a young homosexual not too long ago who had come to saving faith in Christ. But he was still struggling at times with same-sex attraction and sexual orientation. Like we all struggle with our sinful passions, our evil desires. And he told me how he had been told that his same-sex attraction, that is his desires, are not morally culpable. Homosexuals and lesbians only sin when they act upon their desires. I remember asking him, would you say the same thing about pedophiles? Is it not sin for a pedophile to desire a young child? By the way, this is a growing heresy that's sweeping through evangelicalism like the bubonic plague. And perhaps you've heard of Revoice 20. It's a conference that was held not too long ago. Fostering peace, honoring dignity, preserving faith, they say. I was reading their vision uh, on their website. Revoice exists because we want to see gay, lesbian, bisexual, and other same-sex attracted people who adhere to historic Christian teaching about marriage and sexual expression flourish in their local faith communities. By the way, the problem is they don't adhere to historic Christian teaching about marriage and sexual expression. Well, anyway, this dear guy said how he was told that since he was no more responsible for his desires than the color of his eyes, that his desires were, to paraphrase his, his words, just morally benign, just no big deal. In fact, his desires, therefore, determined his identity his sexual orientation, which he was supposed to proudly embrace. But what was really fascinating is this young man was convicted over his sin, over his desires, and he was struggling with it. I remember him saying to me something like this, how can desiring what God forbids not be sinful? So I told him that what these people were telling him is pure biblical fiction. It's heresy of the worst sort. By the way, folks, this is what false teaching does. This, why, this is why you have to fight it. This is why you have to call it out for what it is. This is heresy, damnable heresy that is ruining lives. It robs people of the transforming power of the gospel and the spirit's renewal of the inner man. It ruins all of that. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do. This young man, and many like him, was confused. He was hurting, and he was convicted. 
But you know what was great? The truths of the word of God brought comfort to his soul. Moreover, the ordinary means of grace that was available to him that he's still pursuing changes the heart. Prayer, personal pursuit of holiness, fellowship with God's people, sitting under the preaching and the teaching of the word, the one another, one anotherings of scripture, that intentional fellowship, all of those things God uses to transform the inner man. So I had to help him understand that his ongoing experience of same-sex attraction is but one of many manifestations of indwelling sin that is common to us all. We all have desires and inclinations and proclivities and attitudes that are offensive to God and absolutely antithetical to his purposes for us. Of course, illicit desires that lead to an illicit object is sinful. Scripture is filled with that. Ephesians 2, 3, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, and so forth. Romans 6, 12, we are told, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And you see, for the truly regenerate, we're able to fight that battle and to win that battle by the power of the Spirit of God. We're new creatures in Christ. The old things pass away. The new things come. James 1, verse 14 But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I had the joy of showing him, as I've been able to many others over the years, to show him how you put to death the evil desires within us, those evil desires to enter into a homosexual relationship that not only God forbids, but abhors. Uh, How we must all do the same with our evil desires that we harbor in our heart because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, Romans 8, 7. I reminded him of Colossians 3 and verse 5. We are to consider the members of our earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. See, folks, regardless of our evil desires, whatever they might be, and we've all got them, we must cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, as Paul will remind us in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. And it was a joy to see how God's word brought clarity and conviction and comfort to his heart. To see him begin to grow in Christ, as many others have over the years. And by the way, many of people who struggle with these things in the homosexual community are afraid to say anything for fear of the attacks they will receive from others in their community that don't want to hear any of this. But this is the power of the gospel. And now to see how the spirit is changing his desires, And help him see that his identity is in Christ, not not some absurd fabrication that sinful man has concocted to identify as anything other than a man or a woman is a blasphemous perversion and inversion of God's moral and physical order and a profane contradiction of God's purposes in creation and redemption. But people are not being told these things. Romans 6 and verse 17, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Oh, dear friends, I hope you find comfort in these great truths. 
And what a thrill it is to see people gloriously saved and transformed, to begin walking in faith and obedience. I know I'm a recipient of this thing, the same thing as you are. And for this reason, we can obtain comfort through the word of God. Psalm 119, 113 summarizes it. He says, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to your word that I may live. And do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe. That I may have regard for your statutes continually. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes. For their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you. And I am afraid of your judgments. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. And finally, very quickly, know that the great distresses of your life are short-lived. And when embraced, as I have stated, even your afflictions will bring great joy to your soul. I close with what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, may this be the sincere attitude of our heart. May may we all find comfort knowing that you have ordained our afflictions for your good and our glory, knowing that every trial is an opportunity for us to be strengthened in our faith, that we might experience more of your presence and power in our life, knowing that every trial is an opportunity to grow in Christ-like obedience through your word and to know that even the great distresses of our life are short-lived, Because indeed, life is short and you're coming again. And to know that even in our trials, we can find joy through your presence. So, Father, we trust in your all-powerful and all-sufficient grace to make these truths a reality in our life. That Christ might be exalted. That sinners might be saved and that we as those who have, who are debtors to your grace might experience the fullness of joy that is ours in Christ Jesus, that we might be comforted in our afflictions. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.